Jason Burgess going to come and read the text this morning, and then we're going to get into Matthew chapter 2. Good morning. We are going to be reading the entire chapter of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. As I was pondering the passage and meditating on it, um, I think for the first time in a a while, uh, some of the ironies in this passage really jumped out at me. Of course, the the um, not-so-subtle irony of Jesus, the king of the world, the king of the Jews coming. Um, Not only were they not in anticipation of him, but they were very troubled at his coming. And Herod himself, who uh, mocked the wise men, pretending that he wanted to worship Jesus, in the end, he himself was angered because he felt he had been mocked by their not returning to him. And of course, Jesus having to flee his own kin, his own people, down to find safety in Egypt, the pagan nation. Full of, full of ironies, the story here. Matthew chapter 2. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. 
Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted, because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, For they are dead, which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father, today we are filled with gratitude for the wonder, Father, of Jesus' birth, of the miracle, of the promises fulfilled, of that redemption plan that began in the garden. We're grateful, Father, for your great love wherewith you loved us. We're reminded, Father, that it's through great suffering, Lord, you delivered your people. May we not forget that, Father, as we encounter these sufferings in our own lives. And may we be comforted, Lord, that our very King, our very God, suffered for us. Father, we remember our brothers and sisters at the church in Warren, Calvary, Um, as they're currently without a shepherd. Lord, I pray that you would comfort them, being the great shepherd, that they would look to you, trust in you, Father, in search of their uh, pastor. Give them wisdom. Give them comfort. And I pray that you would lead them and bless them. Father, guide Pastor Jamie this morning as he presents your word. May our hearts be... um, soft and tender to hear and receive it. May we be blessed by the hearing and preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Nick is helping at um, Littlefield this morning as Mark is on his way back from He's home now, okay, uh, and came home with a new son uh, from the Ukraine, and so um, praise the Lord for that. It's great to see um, people from our church helping God's kingdom all over. Um, Brother Gary is preaching at Calvary um, this this morning, so it's neat to see us um, helping other other churches here um, in that way. Um, I apologize for the spelling error on the screen. My daughter pointed it out to me. I never noticed it. How many of you didn't notice it like me? Oh, good. Okay, so we're the naive ones, I guess. And um, anyway, um, I uh, I love all the stuff about Christmas time. The lights, the 
the fun things. The fun songs about Christmas. Yeah, I know the ones that aren't so spiritual. You know, Frosty the Snowman. And the Christmas song, Chestnuts Roasting on Open Fire. I love all that stuff, right? It kind of it takes us into, a, into a, another world, doesn't it? Um, and we kind of can shove uh, this world uh, off to the side a little bit here. But the true story of Christmas does not do that. It does not do that. Um, I used to have this naive thought that people like Christmas. Everybody likes Christmas because you still have Jesus as a baby in a manger and he's no threat to anyone. Baby threatens no one. So the whole thing is just a happy event. It means nothing at all. That's why so many people like Christmas. And I, think, I suppose there's an element of truth to that. But that's not what the Word of God says. At the heart of the Christmas story in Matthew's Gospel is a baby who poses such a threat to the most powerful man around that he kills a whole village full of babies in order to get rid of him. And at the heart of the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 as well is a baby who, if only the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus knew the role he was playing with this census he's taking, that he probably would have stopped it because this one is Lord of the whole world. Within one generation, his followers will be persecuted by the empire of Rome as a danger to the good order of that empire. So whatever else you say about Jesus and the loveliness we enjoy about Christmas, from His birth onwards, people found Him to be a threat to their world order and to their kingdom. He upset their power games. And He suffered the usual fate of people who did that in an empire. And I want you to understand as we read this Scripture here, and we get into verses 13 through 18 in particular here. From this moment on, Jesus' birth, the shadow of the cross looms over Jesus. It's not just something he waited 30 or so years to get to. The shadow of the cross is there from this moment on. Jesus is born with a price on his head as an infant. There are plots that are hatched. There are angels who have to warn Joseph. They only just escaped from Bethlehem in time. Herod the Great, the guy, if you read history, uh, wrote it as his um, uh, history records and Josephus' records, thought nothing of killing members of his own family, including his own wife. He killed three of his sons. One son he killed five days before he himself died when he suspected them of scheming against them. He gave orders that uh, the leading citizens of the city of Jericho in Israel should be slaughtered so that people would be weeping at his funeral when he knew he was going to die. He wouldn't have batted an eye about killing some babies here. He has his paranoia, just like any dictator. The more power you give them, the more paranoid they become. And so this truth about who Jesus is and and, and the place that He's born and the time when He's born is a scene that is a time of trouble and violence and tension and fear. We love the pastoral uh, Christmas scenes, don't we? But before the Prince of Peace had learned to talk and walk, He was a refugee to Egypt with a bounty on His head. And Matthew, this Jewish 
writer here. He wants his Jewish readers to read who Jesus is. He wants them to see that in Jesus, at the darkest, that's when God comes. That's how Israel's Redeemer was to appear. That's how God will bring His truth, His hope, His comfort to this world here. And it's not an easy life. The world suffers violence and injustice. And if God is to be Emmanuel, God with us, He must be with us where the suffering is. And that's what Matthew 2 is about. And there are echoes all over this chapter of Jesus reliving Israel's story. The exodus to Egypt. I wonder if we, like Israel of old, wonder if God will really conquer, if He really will do that, and what He has accomplished to do this. I wonder if we see the relevancy of Christmas, the sweet and sentimental seasonal stories and the things that we've attached to it, and we wonder, is it really relevant? Maybe we really don't think about the raw and bloody and evil undercurrent and Christ's birth conquering that level of the raging godless world. Or maybe when we suffer... It never crossed our minds or thoughts about how Christmas and the Incarnation intersects with that and is relevant. Maybe the Incarnation, we hold it up and it might seem to us, is that really sufficient? It seems insufficient for us to handle these, the deepest hurt. And so when Christmas comes around, it's our escape. It's our fantasy escape with good memories and push aside the hurts. And those things are wonderful. But I want you to know that Christmas intersects with suffering and God gives true hope in this. I'm sure many of you here know people who have a hard time during Christmas. And maybe you don't know how to give hope from the incarnation story. And I want us to see from this passage how we ourselves can receive comfort and then give comfort to those who need it as well. What we see here in this passage is the truth that though there is great evil and the effects of the wages of sin and death, there is true conquering hope if we're willing to listen and see it. And Matthew's quotations from the Old Testament as he inserts these comments on this tragedy. And as Jason read this morning, what happened in Bethlehem was glorious and it was awful. It was awful. You might ask yourselves, where does this depravity, this killing babies come from? And the first thing I want us to see this morning is that there is, <clears throat> there is an agenda of death since the world began. There is an agenda of death since the world began. Notice not how God made the world. But it is how evil has infiltrated the world through Satan and then Adam by one man. Think about the rebellion led by the evil one. And then the death that passed on all men since Adam and Eve's failure and temptation. And then the truth that the Scriptures tell us that it is no surprise that there is a united, strategic rage against the Son of God that has been since beginning of history. 
The psalmist says this, says it this way, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that have put their trust in him. This is ultimately what is at the, the root of the human heart. Rage against the Son of God. And here in Matthew 2, we just see it exhibited even more. But friends, I want you to understand this as well. And this is, this is a side note, but it is very relevant to our culture and our time here. That children are always caught in the middle of this. It was this way for the nations that were disinherited from God, that turned from God, the pagan nations there in Genesis, that one of the things they do in their worship celebrations is sacrifice their children to their false gods. It was the thing that God warned Israel would happen if they turned to the nations. They would also sacrifice their God, their children to the god Moloch. And it happened. Because the Herods of this world begin by hating the child Jesus. And it spills over and ends up hurting and murdering children. Our most vulnerable and our most innocent. 300 plus slaughtered unborn this year in Augusta. Just Augusta. 815 a day in the U.S. in the hands of medical professionals who promised to do good to the healing to the public as they took the Hippocratic Oath. Two-thirds the population of our whole state each year in our country. Oh, that's one way it exhibits itself. Another way this agenda of death since the world began exhibits itself, specifically in the vulnerable, would be if you visited a brick factory in India and saw the children working there. Or maybe the child in your neighborhood with bruises wondering why he's such an awful person that mom's boyfriend would want to hurt him. Or that relative who has groomed the child they were supposed to be trusted with and violate. There is an agenda of death since the world began. That's very clear. Everybody, even the atheist, says what's wrong with this world? But friends, this culture of death It sits on creation like a dump truck on our chest. There's an ache. There's a suffering that grinds away at us like rocks in our engine, like salt eating away at our souls. Romans 8 says creation is groaning in travail because of the curse of sin. There is an agenda of death since the world began. But I want you to understand, in relation to that agenda, it's not emotionless. There is a weeping since the world began. Look in chapter 2 again of Matthew. Verse 18. In Ramah, there is a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, would not be comforted because they are not. So Herod does this awful evil and he kills um, all the the, 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 the sons uh, there that were two and under. There in the realm of Bethlehem. And uh, Bethlehem was a small village, and that window probably would have been about 20 children, uh, but most scholars believe. Horrible act. Um, and near Bethlehem, there's a place called Ramah. And Ramah is where Jacob buried Rachel. 
Rachel, remember, was the wife that Jacob had who didn't have children for a long time. <coughs> Pleaded to God for children. And God gave her two children. What were their names? First, Joseph, and then Benjamin. This second one, Benjamin, she died giving birth to. She died in childbirth. She named him Benjamin, which means son of my sorrow. Son of my sorrow. (laughs) Jacob buries her there. And Matthew takes this quote from Jeremiah, and he applies it as a commentary on what's going on with Matthew 2, and there are huge implications here. You see, when Jeremiah is quoting this in Jeremiah chapter 31... Jeremiah is describing the captivity, the exile of Israel. And Babylon came down and they destroyed Jerusalem and they took Israel captive and they brought them and they brought them into a sort of concentration camp, a staging area at Ramah. And there the prisoners would be taken to Babylon for hell. Right there where Rachel was buried. And so here is Rachel again. Rachel, many times called the mother of Israel by the Jewish rabbis, seeing her children again. And she's mourning. She's weeping. They're taken now to Babylon. And here she is, the, uh, Jeremiah pictures her in her grave, weeping over this next round of her children who are not experiencing life as she would expect. Rachel weeping for her children. Unconsolable. And again, it has always been this way, hasn't it? Think of Eve. Eve, the one who, after she sinned, God said, out of your seed, I'm going to provide a Redeemer who's going to crush the serpent. And then, and then Eve has her firstborn son. And Genesis chapter 4, and verse 1 says, she called, uh, she called him Cain, and, and, and she says, I have gotten a man, and the translators supply these two words, from the Lord, but literally, I have gotten a man, Jehovah. Perhaps thinking she has, this is the promised seed. This is the Redeemer. And what does she find out about Cain? She has another son, Abel. Her firstborn son kills Abel. A mother's heart, weeping for her children. You have Rachel in this situation again. You have um, mothers all along. And here you have this scene here of Bethlehem. And I want you to see this picture here. This is called the scene of the massacre of the innocents. It's painted by a Parisian painter, Leon Coinet, in 1824. It's a haunting picture. It's a picture of a mom sheltering her child there, kind of knowing that the inevitable is coming as Herod's soldiers come through the city. Friends, at Christmas time, we celebrate a conquering king, right? This king who's come into the world to bring peace and justice, to bring his love, his kindness, and the gospel to all. But we forget that the birth of Christ saw in Revelation chapter 12 a cancerous force here. A, 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 an empire of this earth that is ruled by the prince of the power of this air was challenged. You see in Matthew chapter 2 the jealousy of one of his principalities, Herod. And you see again the most vulnerable being slaughtered. 
I'd like you to look, turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. and From the last book of the Bible, see God's comments here on the story of the world and what's been going on all along. And there appeared a great wonder of heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. I think this is referring to Israel and the twelve tribes. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. It did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. As I said, the son has always had a marked price on his head. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to His throne. This prophecy in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 18, when, she, when Rachel, who had given birth in Genesis 35 to this son, she named Benoni, son of my sorrow. Jacob renames him Benjamin later. Jeremiah's prophecy was given about 600 years before Christ was born. It grew out of the captivity of Jerusalem. Rachel's weeping. It's like Rachel's looking at these captives. She's saying, I gave my life to bear a son, and now these descendants are no more. But friends, in Matthew 2, there is hope. And that quotation from Jeremiah, because the rest of Jeremiah 31 has great promise. Those of you who are Bible uh, uh, study uh, um, uh, people who, who have looked in the Scriptures, you know the significance of Jeremiah 31 in the Scriptures. It's the new covenant that He promises. It's a new covenant that Jesus will later on say, this is ratified in My blood at the Lord's Supper. And Jeremiah 31 here implies future hope. And so when Matthew writes this in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 18, quoting Jeremiah, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children would not be comforted because they are not. The Jewish reader would hear Jeremiah 31. And as many of these writers would, 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 would quote the Scriptures, they would leave the other part out to beg the question, okay, what after? What after? And any Jewish writer who would be able to get access to the scroll of Jeremiah would be able to see the rest of Jeremiah chapter 31 because I want you to see thirdly, there is the promise in progress since the world began. See, in Jeremiah 31, there's future hope. Rachel weeps for her children. And I'd like you to go over to Jeremiah chapter 31 here. And see that though she is weeping for her children and seems inconsolable there, uh, God promises a restoration of His people in Jeremiah 31 and verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice was overheard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they were not. 
Thus says the Lord, Refrain your voice from weeping, and your eyes for tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy, and there is hope in your end, says the Lord, that your children shall come again to their own border. Later on, he says in the rest of that chapter, he says in verse 31, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which by covenant they broke, although I was an husband to them, says the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. How can a holy God forgive sin and iniquities no more? Jesus says it's through His blood. And Matthew quotes this, and really what he's saying is that in Jesus Messiah, the anticipated salvation has begun. It has begun. I told you that after Rachel lost Benjamin, she, or, or uh, when Rachel gave birth to Benjamin, she named him Son of My Sorrow. Jacob, after Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin, names him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Think about the Lord Jesus here. The man of sorrows. The man appointed to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. And Jacob puts up a pillar to mark Rachel's grave near Bethlehem. And as Jacob would have piled those rocks there on Rachel, and 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 Jeremiah uh, draws this picture in mind and, and personifies Rachel, then seeing again death and and the destruction and, and sin here, and they saw Bethlehem as a place of death. The birth of Jesus comes in Bethlehem again, and again we're seeing death again. But the birth of Jesus makes it a place of life. Because of His coming, there will be spiritual deliverance for Israel. And in the future, the establishment of David's throne and kingdom. And Israel, the son of God's sorrow, would one day become the son of His right hand through the One who is the son of sorrows and the One who is the King of kings in all authority and is set down at the right hand of God. This promise is fulfilled. We really don't think of Bethlehem as a burial place, do we? But it is. It's the birthplace of Jesus. It is a burial place. It reminds us. There was a day when Jesus was spared from that death, wasn't He? He was whisked down to Egypt like a second exodus. He was sent to Egypt. He was spared. The Son of God was spared. But there was a day coming 33 years later when He would not spare His own life. And the Father would not spare His Son. And the Father would let Him undergo the greatest enemy in humanity, death. And Jesus would give His life. But Jesus, who would die for us, would rise again and give us an eternal life, a bright future before us, and invite us to live forever with Him in that glorious city where death is no more, where tears never fall. He was spared as a babe, not spared as an adult. And He is the 
He is the conquering king. You say, well, what's this have to do with Christmas and suffering? How does this really provide hope for me? I want to remind you, and this passage that Jason read, is the good news is that Herod's die. Herod's die. They're just puppets of the big Herod. And one day that big Herod, the evil one, will be thrown into the lake of fire. Sin and suffering and death will be ended. Crafty as Herod was, his, craft, uh, his craftiness could not save him from death, could it? Kings come and go. God's people endure in Christ. Because God has made endurance possible through this kingdom that has begun in Jesus Christ. And we have lived immersed in thousands of years of earth's history of this squeezing of death like a boa constrictor around our chests. The tears of the weeping of suffering from the effects of death fill the clouds and rivers and oceans of this planet. And this passage here that Matthew is quoting from Jeremiah is all about what God will do after the suffering. You see, in Jesus, not despite these frantic and tragic events that happened around His birth, but because of them, God is providing the salvation and rescue that Israel was longing for. You see, we haven't heard the last of the house of Herod, have we? It's not getting better, is it? But the young child born to be the true king of the Jews is the bearer of God's salvation, of God's presence. And Matthew here is inviting us to see what God will do through him as the true king. Because of the truth of the good news of the gospel is this. Herod is an evil person, and we're right there with him. We are co-conspirators against the Son of God. Our hearts live in rebellion against him as a true king. We want our own way, and we have pushed him out of the picture, or formed him into our own version, a more palatable Jesus. And we have sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of loving God and obedience. And our natural hearts do not want to obey God and all His commands and how we love Him and how we love others. We want to live for ourselves. And we've deceived ourselves that we're too busy for Him and others to be a priority. We've set up ourselves as the God on the throne. And so when we look at Herod, we've got to say, that's where my heart is without Christ. I want Jesus away from my life. Or I certainly don't want him defined in the way that the Bible defines him. I want the Jesus who just does what I tell him to do. But God has sent before our eyes the eyes of us who have rebelled. God has sent this one to be born of a virgin, to live in perfect obedience to live the life we refuse to live and to, desire, to die our deserved death in our place. And by turning ourselves away from our, turning away from ourselves and turning to Him, there is salvation in Him in eternal life with God. This good news is powerful. It is so powerful that it is feared and tried to be snuffed out by the Herods of this world, isn't it? By the forces of evil. 
They'll do anything to snuff it out and influence you not to believe. But it is the only way and the only hope to deliver it from the evil that doesn't just reside in Herod over here, this bad guy, but in my heart. It's the same root. Oh, I wouldn't go and slaughter infants, I wouldn't think. But I rebel against God's ordinance creation in many other ways. Much more sanitized ways. Acceptable ways. And friends, the only way to be rescued is to put our trust in this Jesus. Jesus gives comfort in sin because he takes care of it. And Jesus gives comfort in suffering because he takes care of it. And he is God with us in the suffering. And friends, what I shared about Jesus here and how we have to turn from ourselves to him is the truth that is necessary to be saved from your sin. And believers, it is the truth that needs to be continually pounded in your own heart and reminded of to grow in Christ. We sang a little town of Bethlehem and one of the lines is very poignant. It says, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Now imagine you were that mother in Bethlehem and heard that line as you tried to hide your child. Herod is just a figurehead. Abuses, abuse, bruises, death, fractured relationships, all the experience of sin and suffering in this world. have not been done away with, have they? But Jesus has provided a way for sin to be taken care of, and He has set in motion what will happen one day when the new heavens and the earth are established. This Son was spared, but He will not be spared to go to the cross to make this true for you as you read the rest of Matthew. So friends, rejoice in the festivities of Christmas. But rejoice because of this. Rejoice because the babe with a bounty on his head is God with us. Our salvation in Christ will ultimately be a deliverance from all of this to eternal life with God. And so, friend, if you're here without Christ, The Bible declares you're an enemy of God, apart from Him. But God has given you terms of surrender. The terms of surrender are for you to take yourself and take the good news of Jesus and act in faith upon that, that what God has done because your sin was so awful, God has poured out His anger on His Son. And He has loved you in Christ to provide you with eternal salvation. And believer, these truths must be applied to our hearts every day. That I am now in Christ, and Christ is now in me. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not even the principalities of this world. 
And Christmas is for sufferers. You hear this morning without Christ. I'd love to have answer more questions for you. Have a conversation about the true hope of Christ. The fulfillment that comes in Jesus Christ. The truth that God is with us in Christ. And if you're here this morning as a sufferer, a suffering Christian, perhaps it's relational difficulties, financial difficulties. Uh, perhaps it's just the things of this earth that Jesus says you should expect as a believer. It's not going to be easy. I'd love to be able to counsel and encourage you more in these truths that Jesus is indeed the incarnation of God for sufferers as well. Rachel is weeping. Evil's existed for a long time. But evil isn't outside of us. It's in our own hearts. And God has made the way through Jesus to resolve that deepest issue of our hearts. This is Christmas. So listen to Nat King Cole like I do. Enjoy those crooners. Enjoy the smells. Enjoy the lights. But don't use it as an escape. Don't use it as a fantasy escape from the realities of this world. Understand that all of what Christmas is is to drive us back to Jesus who there in the raw, bloody evil of this world was come with a bounty on his head so that you may be set free. Let's pray.